0: One of the saddest aspects of evangelical Christianity um, today occurs when pastors and leaders in the visible church disqualify themselves from ministry ministry because of immorality. I could, but I won't, list a a very long list of popular and powerful Christian leaders who have failed to maintain their integrity, who failed to maintain their purity uh, while in office, and whose fall has greatly injured their congregations, and their families. I mean, what a sad fact it is that that those who are responsible for the care and the instruction of those they shepherd, that they sometimes fall, they sometimes fail, and and in so doing, they don't set a righteous example for their flock. But lest we think this is only an issue with leaders, I just want to ask some hard questions of ourselves this morning. First of all, why is it that each of us fall prey to temptation and fail at times? How come this is an issue that affects every Christian, every believer? Another question, how come it seems that when we're at the very height of our achievement and success, that a fall is often quick to follow? Is it just coincidence that the Israelites' uh, story that comes to my mind, that they defeat the, the, the mighty city of Jericho and then follow that up with being defeated at the tiny little bastion of Ai. Is that coincidence? In Judges uh, this morning, we want to learn from this story what I think applies to some of these questions. It can help us to better understand and better be prepared to realize that victory does not have to be followed by defeat. We can see in this book the issue before us today, and as we look at the life of Gideon, one of the uh, the judges raised up by God for the very purpose of delivering His people from Israel or His people of Israel from oppression, we'll see this same theme in his life, and I hope that we can learn from it. So that's our goal this morning. In Judges eight twenty two to twenty seven, I'm going to show us, I think, three warnings, three warnings regarding success in a believer's life that should really cause us to take heed. And hopefully will help us to remain faithful to the end so that we're not in that long list of those that have had failure. Look back at our text this morning, and I want to start with our first warning, and it's this, success often brings sudden opportunities, verses 22 and 23, and we're not going to get far. Look at the first word there. The word is then, then, and I'm in seminary, so I have to make a lot out of it, right? But there is a lot out of it, and I need to do this. And here's the reason. Oftentimes in the Bible, we come to these transition words, then, therefore, but, now, etc., and we, we can skip through them and not recognize that there is a lot housed in that word. And in our text today, if I just jumped into Judges chapter 8, verse 22, that would be challenging for some of you, I would imagine. And so I want to just do a little bit of homework. We're going to dig back and understand some of the background. So turn with me back to Judges chapter 1. I promise we won't read the entirety of these eight chapters. But in this little word, then is communicated uh, the sequential order of the whole Judges narrative. It includes these chapters six to eight, which is going to be the Gideon narrative. But we need to understand and get some bearing um, what's going on in Judges. What's this book about? Judges, as I said, is my favorite, one of my favorite books. But it's also one of the great books that gives you an introduction Right, I love it when you're studying a, a book and it's very clear at the beginning what the purpose is. And Judges does this. Judges basically sets the stage uh, for us as we go into and study our passage today. If you look at Judges 1.1, we're reminded of a couple things. Now it came about after the death of Joshua. So we see the context, what's going on here. We notice uh, that Ju- Judges is during the time, uh, the period following Joshua's death. And in fact, if you study this a little bit more, it's the time from Joshua's death until the time of Samuel's life. And all of that time in between, we see the book of Judges. Unlike the book of Joshua, what we also find in chapter 1 is the conquest of the land is not going as well as, as they'd expected. In Joshua, you hear this telling of the people coming into the land, and there is success after success after success, and, and the tribes of Israel are taking up the land that they have been promised by God. But chapter 1 demonstrates a change in that. Look with me at verse 21. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Look at verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bathshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun, Did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 34, then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. What we hear is the reality that the conquest of the land has not gone gone as planned. Canaanites remain. The purpose of God to give the land to the people was that He would give the land fully to the people. That there would be no Canaanite peoples left. And there was a great purpose for that. But but why? Why do they still remain? Look to our text, chapter 2, verse 10. And I want to read 13, 14 verses here because I think it's important. In chapter 2, 10 to 23, we actually hear the summary clearly of why there are still Canaanite peoples in the land. Read with me, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, "'Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice,' I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. What we see here in this passage and why I think it 's so clear and important to read, we see a summary, a description of the clear disobedience and idolatry that existed with the people of Israel. This is what led to oppression. this is what led to judgment this is is, is this pattern we see that exists throughout the book of judges in chapters following three to sixteen we 're going to see this continual pattern over and over and over again, this pattern of The people doing evil. That evil being that they're, they're bowing down to idols. They're worshiping other gods. They're forsaking the Lord. They're following after other gods. And so the Lord brings judgment. And for a time, they're under this fierce judgment. And what happens? They come to a point where they cry out to the Lord. They remember him and they cry out to God. And God hears his, hears their cry. And what's he do? He sends a judge. He raises up a judge who delivers them from the oppression. But it doesn't stop there. What do they do? When the judge dies, they turn right back to the vomit that they had left. And this cycle is not a a cycle as a circle continuing to go around, but as a downward spiral. Each time a judge comes, and it's just a little bit more wicked, and it's just a little bit further down the path. And so, if you were to read, and I would encourage you, if you haven't read Judges lately, take some time and read it, if you were to read this this section, chapter 3 through 16, you would see that downward spiral. And it's important for us to understand this about the book, because when we come to Judges chapter 6, and you can go ahead and turn there with me, when we come to Judges chapter 6, we are at the beginning of a new spiral, as it were, a new cycle Okay, at this point, as it says in verse one, then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Judges six one reminds us that the oppression that was at the hand of the Midianites was very severe and it was there because of the sin of the people, it was there because of the evil and the wickedness and the idolatry that they had committed. It was so severe that look at verse two, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens, which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. It was so bad that the people of Israel, when the Midianites would come and flood into their land, they would make caves and dens and strongholds in the, in the hills and the mountains to go and hide. Could you imagine living in the valley here? And let's say there was an oppressor that came every year at the time of harvest and we all ran off to Silmar. Well, that's where I live. So I'm already there, but we ran off into the hills. We went, we went to Placerita Canyon. We, we, we found ourselves up in the hills. We went up to the, to the hills over here in, in the Santa, Santa Monica. Am I got the right ones? Okay. I am a North Carolina tra- or North, Northern California transplant. So, right. If we ran to the hills and we had dugouts and burrows built so that we could, hide from our oppressors. That's what Israel going through. Can you imagine that oppression, how hard that would be to have a normal lifestyle? You plant your crops with the understanding that for the last six years, guess what? They're just going to come and tear them all down and they're going to bring their animals in and they're going to live on our land and we're going to go hide in the hills. It is so important when we read God's word that we don't fall prey to reading it with this stoic outsider experience. Put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in what the people were experiencing. It helps. It helps to recognize that they were in verse six. What's it say? That they were brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel did something that they should have done from the very beginning. They cried out to the Lord. Verses seven to 10 are pretty unique and I wanna just point these out to you because it's important. Seven through 10 is the only place in the book of Judges where we actually see a prophet sent um, when the, the people cry out. The people cry out and God sends a prophet. And God sends a prophet really to come and to tell them, right, why they're facing this oppression. And the reason he says is because they had not listened to God's voice or obeyed his commands. Look what it says in verse 9. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all oppressors and disposed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God, you shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed me. This was God's judgment. Midian was not just an oppression of a nation from the outside that was coming to sweep in to Israel. God allowed the oppression to happen and sent the Midianites for this very purpose as a form of judgment. And as the story goes, and we don't have time to spend a lot of time going through chapters six, seven, and eight, but what happens next is that God has heard the cry and he, he raises up a judge. In chapter six, we, we see in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord appears to this, this unlikely hero, and his name is Gideon, Gideon. And it's interesting, even where we find Gideon, right? We find Gideon in a wine press trying to, to, to get wheat right trying to uh to to do what he should have done up on a hillside what he should have done where the wind could carry off the chaff but he's afraid of the midianites and so we find him in a wine press doing something he shouldn't have been doing there right this is gideon the son of joaz the Abbe's, abbe yeah, the abbey is right i'm going to mess that one up every time i try it god had heard the cry he comes for this deliverer but gideon is not the uh, the, the the one that you would expect he's weak In fact, notice what he says. He makes excuses when God calls him. God calls him, oh, valiant warrior. And he says, "Uh, God, I am the weakest in my family. I'm the youngest son, and and our our clan is the weakest in Manasseh. But in verse 16, what does the Lord do? He counters Gideon's complaint, and this is a, a passage of Scripture you should probably have highlighted. What's he say? He makes a promise. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian Midian as one man. Um, That little phrase right there, we should all underline. Because when you're facing trial and trouble and difficulty, that's really all that we need, the Lord to be with us. So as it continues, obviously, as I said, time does not permit, uh, what we find in chapters six, seven, and eight, that Gideon recognizes that he has been called to be a judge. And Gideon responds, in fact, one thing that happens in chapter six is that God starts by telling Gideon to tear down the, the altar to Baal and the, and the Asherah pole that was on his father's property in his town of Ophrah. Gideon faithfully submits to God's instruction and really demonstrates a commitment to Yahweh. It gives an example for those around of how he will worship Yahweh and not the idols of Canaan. Canaan. It's as if the Lord is asking for this original um, response of Gideon of faithfulness. He wants to see that Gideon's going to be the right man. Following the scene, we're returned to the Midianites' oppression. And the narrator tells us in verse, six, in verse 33 that the Midianites once again, and the Amalekites and the sons of the East assembled themselves and crossed over and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. And then we hear this, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So what happens here? 135,000 Midianites show up in the valley. This is a pretty significant number. And God calls out Gideon and Gideon calls out the people and the tribes of Israel and he gets a whole whopping 32,000 soldiers. 32,000 soldiers versus 135,000 soldiers. I not military, no background in that, but I would say that's not a fair fight. But God's not happy with the numbers. And so God does something pretty remarkable. He whittles that number down to 300. And I don't want to get lost in the lapping, <laughs> whether they lapped and the significance. The reality of the point here is this. God wants to make it obviously clear that this is not Gideon who wins the victory. God wants to make it absolutely clear. And we see this in chapter seven, verse two. Notice what it says. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying my own power has delivered me. The remainder of chapter seven and eight is really rooted around this. God wants to make it absolutely clear that he is the one that brings salvation, that he is the one that brings deliverance, that he is the one that destroys Midian and brings peace. In fact, when the battle does happen, it's pretty significant if you read that, the 300 surround the Midianites and they have a couple objects. You probably remember this from Sunday school, right? They've got a clay pot full of a torch, a torch, and they've got a trumpet. And on Gideon's command, they do three pretty simple things. They blow the trumpet, they smash the clay jars, and they yell. But there's one thing that we don't always add, and they stand there. They don't attack. They don't run in. God does all the work. He confuses the Midianites. They begin to slay one another, and they flee. So the Gideon, the the battle of Gideon really is a pursuit, not an attack. God's the one that does the work. So this is the, the deliverance. Now we could go on in chapter 7 and 8 and, and hear more about how Gideon now pursues the kings of Midian and ultimately comes to the point where he, he wipes them out. But come back to chapter 8. With that in our background, with this reality of deliverance, we want to actually get into the meat of our text today and our points what we see in 8.22 is after all of this history, after all of this oppression and deliverance, when Gideon is at the very height and pinnacle of popularity and power, there is, as I said earlier, a sudden opportunity that arrives. Look at verse 22. What's it say? Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Here, the Israelites make a very straightforward offer to their judge. This is that opportunity. Uh, Things are very different from chapter six, right? In chapter six, when Gideon first came, he tears down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole and the people of, of his tribe want to do what? They want to kill him. They don't want to make him king. But now, we see a different story. They want to make him king. Now, some commentators see this and, and say, no, he wasn't trying to make him king. And they will use, for example, that there is a Hebrew verb here that is not the Hebrew verb usually used and are incorporated for king. But I think there's actually three things in the text that we can see of this request that, that are important to note and that indicate the significance of this situation and make it clear that he was actually offering kingship. Um, First of all, while it is true that they do use a a verb here that is different from the typical verb used for king, that verb is used in the Old Testament in speaking about kingship or the rule and reign of a king. For example, uh, you don't have to turn there, but you might want to jot this down. 1 Kings 4.21 uses this verb form to speak of Solomon's rule as king. And even if you look in your Text before us, just a few verses ahead in chapter 9, 5, and 6, Gideon's son Abimelech uses the same verb pronouncing his rule over Israel, and then what happens? The people of Shechem make him king. So I think that's one piece that says just because the verb's different doesn't mean that it's not pointing to kingship. Secondly, there is an important use of the verb. The verb here is imperative, okay? This is an imperative verb. In fact, it's the only time in all of the Old Testament that this verb is used in an imperative form. And I think what this is, is, is signifying is that the imperative form is used to express urgency, right? The urgency of this request, they're strongly desiring that Gideon would rule over them, right? Not just that he would uh, just extend his judgeship a little bit, not that he would just pass it on to his sons, but they wanted him to reign. And and this is not passive. This is not a hesitant request. It is a active request. They love Gideon. They're urging him to rule over them. But but why do they love him? Because they see him as their deliverer. Because they see the military advantage that that he might bring. Imagine, this guy just took 300 soldiers and defeated 135,000. You can imagine the popularity that that would bring. But there's a third thing. Notice as well, the use of dynastic language. And and this is interesting. What do they request? They don't just say, "Let's, let's have you rule over us. But they say as well, both you and your son and also your son's son. The people are asking not only for Gideon to reign, but for his offspring after him. They're asking for a succession of rulership. And that points towards kingship as well. I think it's really clear from this and these little points and evidences that they're asking not just for him to extend judgeship, but they're asking for a king, and that's significant. I want you to also notice, look at verse 22, the second half and B, the reason, because there is a wrong interpretation of the source of their deliverance, and I think that's part of why they're asking for kingship. What do they say? They say, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian, the people claim that Gideon is the source of their salvation, that he is the deliverer. And as we just said, it's obvious from chapter 6 to 8 that that's not the case, right? As, we, as I pointed out in chapter 7, verse 2, God reduced the number of the army of Israel for the very express purpose of ensuring that they wouldn't boast in their own deliverance. And yet, what do we see? The people have done exactly what God had warned against, what he called them to avoid, they've given Gideon the credit for God's work. They've exalted the instrument and have rejected or neglected the source. So they offer kingship to Gideon and his line. Now, we see oftentimes when we experience success and victory in our own lives, when we're at the pinnacle of achievement, that there does come these opportunities these sudden opportunities to accept the glory for ourselves rather than to give the glory to God. Now, Gideon could have taken this offer. And I love Gideon's response. Notice it in verse 23. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And we say, amen, right? Good job, Gideon. Great job. Way to go. He's rightly rejected this offer of kingship. He's instead reminded the people of the true king of Israel, who is who? Yahweh, God. His response is good theology here. he's correct in reminding the people that Yahweh is the only king. And we know this from other places in scripture. The Psalter, for example, Psalm 2910 says it this way, the Lord is enthroned as king forever. Psalm 47, two and six through eight. I love how it expresses this. For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful Psalm. God reigns over the nations. God is the one who sits on his holy throne. We must commend Gideon for his right theology here. And ultimately, we must recognize that this is not going to be the last time that they're going to call for a king. It doesn't end here. The people, as we will learn later in the time of the final judge, Samuel, will ask for a king. They'll ask for a king again so that they might be like the other nations. Samuel, of course, at that time is displeased and he goes to the Lord and he prays and God answers in this way. First Samuel 8, 7, he says, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's one of the saddest, saddest sentences in the Bible. That you would have the opportunity to be governed by a perfect God as your king. And you would reject that for a man. We also know in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, I just want to make sure we're clear about this. God's system of government set up in Israel at the time of Mount Sinai, when he was there with the people, was designed to be a theocracy. God was designed to be the king, and the people were to respond in obedience under his his reign. So if you turn with me quickly to Deuteronomy 17, I want to show you a couple things to point out where we can see this. Deuteronomy 17 in verse 8, uh, we can notice in this text that God gives instructions for the future. He says in verse 8, "'If any case is too difficult for you to decide "'between one kind of homicide or another, "'between one kind of lawsuit or another, "'and between one kind of assault or another, "'being cases of dispute in your courts, "'then you shall arise and go up to the place "'which the Lord your God chooses. "'So you shall come to the Levitical priest "'or the judge who is in office in those days, "'and you shall inquire of them, "'and they will declare to you the verdict in the case.'" God had designed it for the office of priest and judge to serve to be those that decided disputes, right? It's clear from that text. But in verse 14, we notice something else that God mentions what's inevitably going to happen when they enter the land. Read this with me. Verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses One from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law and a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left so that he and his sons may continue long in the land in his kingdom, in the midst of Israel. Turn back to Judges 8. As we see in that text, it's really clear the significance when the king was to be raised up. What did God say? A king that I would choose, whom I would choose. And he gave very specific um, instructions for that king. The king was not to multiply horses. The king was not to multiply wives or gold or silver for himself. Instead, what was the king to do? He was to be wise and humble. He was to be committed wholly to God and to the rule of the people, for the good of the people, not for himself. So when we come back to Judges 8 and we see this request, we should not be surprised that the people want to make Gideon king. There may have been some in that day that said, hey, remember Deuteronomy 17? We're in the land. Here's the time. The opportunity's here. And chapter 17 and 21, one of probably the most famous verses in Judges, you know, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They wanted a king just like the nations around them. But Gideon's theology is good enough and solid enough that he refuses. And instead he points to Yahweh as their king. I think there's an important application here. Oftentimes I think it's actually easier to stand against such temptations like this. Obvious, sudden opportunities, but clearly distinct, right? I used to teach junior high and we, every spring, uh, students, our eighth graders would go back to Washington, D.C. And I was left with the seventh graders and two other teachers. It was a lot of fun. And um, I love seventh graders. But we would do this week called drug week. And drug week was, I was a science teacher, so I would spend the week teaching the kids about all of the different illicit drugs that they would have opportunities in junior high and high school, Lord willing, they wouldn't, but going through and talking about scientifically how those affected the body and how they could make good choices based upon what they knew. Now, one thing that I always shared as an illustration with them is is the, the story of, of being offered drugs, right? I said, you're probably going to go to a high school. Many of our kids at that junior high went to public high schools. And I said, there's a high probability that you're going to have somebody at some point offer you something. And I said, what's, what's easier? Resisting the scary unknown stranger that pops around the corner and offers you something that you don't know what it is or your best friend who does it in the comfort of their home? And the illustration fits here. The reality, I think, is that oftentimes we can clearly articulate our theology and our doctrine. And we can stand against those obvious, obvious attacks against it. Gideon, when he's, when he's given this opportunity to, to uh, reign, he, he says, no, that's not right. That's not what I've been called to do. God has called me to judge. And I think for us, we need to remember that, that the front door attacks are usually easier to ward off, but there's more, isn't there? It's true that success brings sudden opportunities. But secondly, look at verse 24. Success provides subtle enticements. Let's read the text. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold that he requested was 1,700 shekels besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neck bands that were on their camel's necks. And Gideon made it into an ephod. The sad truth of this portion of our text is that just seconds after Gideon says the right thing and affirms a right theology of deliverance, his actions and words contradict this statement. He asked for articles of gold for a portion of the spoil that the people had taken from the Midianites. The request here is, is seemingly unimportant, right? It, it, the people are willing and even happy to respond. I mean, after all, he's, one of the, he's the one that led the Israelites into battle. He's the one that was their instrument of deliverance, right? Right. And here I think lies that subtle enticement. We find ourselves often in times of success and times of victory like Gideon, and we can be presumptuous and we can take something for ourselves, which we're not actually intended to have. In fact, the request of Gideon really seems to indicate a strong desire for kingship and that it was actually greater than his his words uh, seem to indicate. Uh, Sure, he said he wouldn't be king, but the action of this, these verses of seeking a a kind of an offering seems to indicate something else, right? His words in verse 23 and his actions in 24 to 27 do not line up. For example, he receives 43 pounds of gold. Today's market, that would be the equivalent of about three quarters of a million dollars. And that's not including the other articles that, that it mentions here in the text, So what does the action of Gideon remind you of? Does it remind you of the king of Deuteronomy 17? Who does what? Who multiplies gold and silver. Second, beyond this, we learn in verse 30 that Gideon, if you look ahead with me, now Gideon had 70 sons, that's a lot, who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. We see in this text as well, really the production of almost as it were a royal harem. It's another warning of Deuteronomy 17, isn't it? Do not multiply wives. In verse 31, the verse following, we learn that he had a concubine in Shechem who also bore him a son and he named him something, Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king. It's a strange name to give your son uh, unless there's some aspiration or meaning behind it. And each of these items point to the reality that Gideon had submitted to this subtle enticement of fame and glory that a kingship would afford. He was tempted by the opportunity for some personal benefit from these people. They were willing. And his correct rejection of kingship is thus contradicted by his request for benefit. He's a hypocrite. His practice did not line up with his theology. He said one thing and he did another. Time doesn't afford us, but boy, could I spend some time camping on this one. As an application, I will tell you, isn't this true for each of us today? Don't we struggle with the fact that our words say one thing and our actions speak a totally different thing? That our deeds for God are in line with our beliefs about God. That is so vital in our lives, isn't it? that we set an example, that it's clear from our lives and our actions that that that's in line with what we say we believe. Uh, How easy is it to have a sound biblical doctrine and yet live the life that looks more like an unbeliever? Think of the church of Ephesus, right? In the book of Revelation, Their, their doctrine was sound. It was good. They'd forgotten their first love. And so can we. Look back with me at verse 27 though. What's most stark in this manner was not just that he took the gold, not that he says something different than he acts. The worst part of the story is he took the gold and he made it into an ephod. Now, for some of us, this may have little significance. An ephod, okay? What is that? Um, What is it? What is an ephod? What was the the purpose of an ephod? An ephod was a close-fitting armless uh, outer vest that was exclusively used by priests, a priestly garment. And it was used in the worship of God. If we had the time, we could go to Exodus chapter 28 and you could read in verse 6 and following how God gives instruction about what this ephod should look like. It was to be made of gold and, and blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen. It was supposed to be attached to the ephod, a special breastplate. And on that breastplate, there were 12 precious stones that each bore the name of one of the tribes of Israel. The breastpiece also would have had what was known as the Urim and the Thummim, and these were two objects that were fastened to the breastpiece and kind of served as a a means to determine uh, God's will in a situation. Um, This was was an object worn by the high priest only, and an object that was used when he he sought to, to know the will of God. So Gideon's production of an ephod was inappropriate and improper. The ephod was only to be worn by the priest. And so his production of this gold version, you can imagine what this would have looked like and the weight. It shows one of two things. He's either ignorant or he's disobedient of the law of God. That's it. And he makes this thing. And I just want to add to, at this point, I, I really agree with commentators that I, I don't think Gideon was doing this. Um, I think his motives were innocent. I don't think Gideon was building, creating this ephod for the purpose of leading the people into worship, into false worship, into, I think he was doing something kind of similar to what Aaron did, in essence, when Moses was on the mountain. He made a calf. And if you read that, that story, the calf was to be a representation of Yahweh. Aaron wasn't trying to, to, to move them in a different direction from Yahweh, but he was doing something outside of what God had instructed I don't think Gideon was setting up an idol or trying to return the people to Baal worship, but I do agree with one commentator. Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says that Gideon created this ephod that he might become a channel of Yahweh's direct guidance in addition to the priest and ephod that God had already provided with him in the in the tabernacle. And listen, he says in applying this to our lives, I can't say it any better. Christians today do not deal with ephods, high priests, or tabernacles, and yet may have this same thirst for more. Gideon had a hankering for more than what God had already given for sustenance, for nurture, for direction. We subtly suggest God has furnished us inadequately. We're not content merely to walk obedient to the scriptures, trusting God's providence and goodness to direct us in the proper path. No, we must have more a specific direct word from God about what we should do in our particular problem. So we come up saying, the Lord said to me that I should, or the Holy Spirit spoke to me telling me that, end quote. This is so true of our lives and the temptation of success that we experience when there's a significant victory that we assume more than we should. We substitute the experiential for the basic means of grace that God has given us. He has given us, The scriptures and prayer, the Lord's Supper and fellowship with other believers. Those are the means that we fellowship with Him, that we commune with God, that we get to know Him and His will. But what do we do? There must be more. We must have more. And we're led into this sin of presumption. It's a very subtle, but very dangerous enticement. So we've seen success brings sudden opportunities. It provides subtle enticements. Lastly, success often gives significant influence. Look at verse 27b. He placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Now you Notice firstly that Gideon set up the ephod in his own city. He did not give it to the Levites to be held in the tabernacle as a, as a commemoration of the Lord's great victory over Midian, No, instead he places it in Ophrah. As the text shows us, Ophrah effectively becomes an alternative place of worship to what God has constituted at the tabernacle at that time in Shiloh. And what did the text say? It says that all Israel prostituted after it there. Gideon's notoriety and his popularity and his influence extends to all Israel. His influence is widespread. Why? Because he's their champion. We've just read it in chapter in verse 22, right? He was their deliverer. They had, he had delivered them from the hand of Midian. He was their victor. But what does this become? At the end of the verse, it says it becomes a snare, a snare, a means of idolatry for the people of Israel. And isn't this A tragedy. This is a tragedy when we think of this man. It's Judge Gideon's very actions that lead to the next episode of apostasy and idolatry from the nation. He's actually begun the downward spiral in his life. It's so sad when we look at the beginning of the Gideon narrative and we see Gideon doing what? Tearing down the altar of Baal and the uh, the Asherah poles, doing something that God's called him to do, a noble deed. And now he comes full circle, and in turn, at the Ophir shine, Shrine, he makes it a pagan place of worship. And people prostitute themselves there. One commentator puts it this way, at the beginning of the Gideon story, Ophir is the hub of a clan cult, a family affair. It's just small. At the end, it's the center for national religious prostitution. The final irony of the story is that Gideon, champion of Yahweh against Baal, presides over the national apostasy that after his death will become full scale Baal worship again. And in this way this is a warning passage to every single one of us. Every one of us that we need to recognize the significance of our lives and how we influence others. We need to recognize that with success often comes a level of influence and a level of influence that can be for good or for ill. As chapter 9 will go on and Chronicle, what we see next is that Gideon's sin wreaks havoc. In fact, so much that his own family, his own community, the whole nation of Israel falls into idolatry. It was this subtle enticement of achievement that led to this great influence. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10-12, and I titled this message this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let's remember it's when we're seemingly strong. Let's remember that it's when we're at our highest ability. Let's remember that it's when we're, we're just enjoying victory and success. That is often the time when we are most vulnerable. That's often the time when we are most attacked. And if you don't believe me, just consider a couple biblical examples You guys know the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel? Elijah does something, well, God does something amazing through Elijah at Mount Carmel, doesn't he? God defeats 450 prophets of Baal. And the next day, where do we find Elijah? Running through the desert away from a woman, Queen Jezebel, at the highest of highs, at the lowest of lows, to the point where he says, God, just take me out, be done with me. We think of David at the height of his royal reign in Second Samuel chapter 11. He's just defeated 40,000 uh, Arameans. And it says in the text, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David did what? He sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And we know what came out of that. The next step in that narrative is Bathsheba. David was a point of highest honor, and then he was at a point of lowest failure. In the New Testament, the example of Peter in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the famous statement to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? It's Simon Peter that says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus calls him blessed. A couple of verses later, after Jesus talks of his coming death, Peter's the one that rebukes him and says, it'll never happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The highest of highs, the lowest of lows. We must always take heed lest we fall. But lest we rely on our own strength, think back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, because it gives us a promise that we can take with us today. Paul continues after he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He says this, "'No temptation has overtaken you, "'but such as is common to man. "'And God is faithful, "'who will not allow you to be tempted "'beyond what you are able, "'but with the temptation will provide "'the way of escape also, "'so that you will be able to endure it. "'In the midst of our strength and our victory "'and seeming stability, "'we must always remember this one point. "'Who gives us that strength? "'Who gives us that victory? "'Who gives us that stability?' It's not our own. We must remain, remain dependent upon God. He is the one that is faithful. We sang it earlier. One of my favorite hymns. Great is thy faithfulness. He's the one that's faithful. He's the one that must receive all glory and all honor that's due only him. He is the one that will provide the way of escape when that temptation hits. He is the one that we must lean on, that we must trust in. We must never become complacent or content with our spiritual state, but continually striving to grow closer to know our Savior and our Lord. We've seen this morning that success often brings sudden opportunities, that it provides subtle enticements, that it gives significant influence. And I just want to close with one statement here. There is an example in the Bible that we can point to where you have Success followed by success, followed by success, followed by success. In the book of Matthew chapter three, we see Jesus at his baptism. And at the moment of his baptism, the heavens are open. The Holy Spirit comes down, descends on him as a dove. And the text tells us that from heaven, the father proclaims this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine a a higher moment to be identified as the very son of God? In the text, what happens next? Directly following that in chapter four, verse one, Jesus is led out into the wilderness. He spends 40 days fasting and he's tempted by Satan himself. And what's he do? He resists every temptation. He conquers every temptation. And he does it by doing one thing, trusting in his father and walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that way, he shows for us an example that we should all grasp onto, that we have a Savior and a Lord who shows that we can, that we can overcome temptation, that success does not have to be followed by defeat. And so long as we depend on Him and so long as we trust in Him and so long as we walk by the, the power of the Spirit, we can overcome, we can stand, but only in the strength that God provides. And that's a truth that we should take with us. May we be individuals who finish the Christian race well. May each of us in this room be examples like Paul who could say this, follow my example as I follow Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for the time we have had this morning to open up your scriptures and to study there. We thank you for what you have given to us. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful who is just, who is righteous, and yet at the same time, a God who is merciful and gracious, even to those of us who fail. Thank you for restoring us when we do. Thank you for hearing us when we cry out. And Lord, help us even this day as we leave to rely and depend upon you and your strength alone. You might use us for your glory and your glory alone. We anticipate the time when Christ returns. And until that time, Lord, may we go out into all the nations and declare the precious name of Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel to all that are on this globe. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.